0: The passage for this morning is found in Philippians 4, 6 through 7. But before we get into that, I really wanted to share something with you that I noticed about maybe our walk with God. And it's not something super profound, but it's something I've been thinking about for a while, a number of years, and it's about the church body. My parents found Jesus just before I was born, and we spent a few years at a smaller Pentecostal church in Milwaukee. And just after that, we transitioned to this other church, this mid-sized church about this size at the time. I stayed there throughout the rest of my childhood, my youth, and my young adult life, and it's been some of the best years of my life there at Poplar Creek Church, and so we attended there forever. And year after year, my friends and I would do Sunday school, learning all the Bible stories, learning all the characters, all the fundamental truths of who God is and what he says about this world, seeing what Jesus and his followers did in the surrounding communities. We did the bake sales to raise money for missionaries all over the world. We did Fundraising for different groups. We stayed late after church playing in the parking lot and having lunch with our family, friends and their parents after church even then. And sometimes we got to do church again that same night at 530. So Sunday had been a family affair. There was no going home. You're just at church. And I absolutely loved it. On Wednesday nights, they had groups like Royal Rangers, and they had adult small group classes where you would focus on different topics similar to our life groups. And it was amazing. We had an amazing time. But as I got older, I started to realize something a little bit about Christians. As I started to mature in my faith, as I started to spend more time in my word and observe people and really take note of my own life, I started to feel like people don't really know what they're doing. And I want to explain that, but some of you might say that's true today, that adults don't really know everything. We know a lot, but we don't know everything. And sometimes you feel like you're failing, and you really don't know what the next steps are. And as a kid, we always grow up thinking, well, adults know what they're doing, so i got to listen to them. But as I got older, I found out that (laughs) wasn't true. And here's what I mean. I started to notice that we don't always know the how-tos of our walk. I mean, we're doing life. We're going to Bible study, worshiping on Sunday mornings, and sometimes Sunday nights. We're going to the church picnic. We're hanging out with our church friends and family throughout the week. We're connected on Facebook, and we like the Facebook posts about God and people's new seasons and praises and prayers. We're involved. We're part of this little community. We're part of just about everything. But then there's this moment in the walk where after it's going really well, you're loving it. You're confronted with some type of situation that presents a challenge. This could be a temptation of sin, a difficult decision, hurts and pains. Someone says something out of pocket to you or calls you out of your name. Maybe you have an argument with your spouse or maybe you have a severe argument with your children. And all of a sudden we... Lose our minds and we don't know what to do. We don't know what the next steps are. For whatever reason, I don't remember what God told me to do in that situation. We say things we normally wouldn't say. We do things we normally wouldn't do. And when we try to problem solve, we often find ourselves playing a guessing game. We're on the journey, right? And we're looking left and right. Instead of going to God, we're looking at what so-and-so is doing over here or maybe what so-and-so over there is doing. And maybe if I just emulate what that person's doing, they're a Christian, right? That's the right thing. And we guess, and we guess, and we guess, and we find ourselves creating bad habits, and in some severe cases, we find ourselves creating some wrong theology about God because we're doing what other people are doing instead of what his word says because we've allowed ourselves to cling to two things, our feelings and our thoughts instead of God's word. And so over time, this is dangerous. Over time, if you're not protective, the small thoughts that are in your mind might eventually take you captive. Church, we cannot solve spiritual problems with solutions of chance. There is no chance. You cannot go through life and your walk with God guessing you're going to find yourself in a really tough spot. Because I want to tell you, there is no chance in God's word. When it comes to the Lord, there is no chance. The truth is that we have answers. We have the DIY special on YouTube on how to walk our faith out with God. We have blueprints. We've got history. We've got books. We've got tutorials and examples. We've got everything at our disposal, including the most important portion that works it out in us, which is the Holy Spirit. God's working this work in my own heart. And I want to be honest, when I'm up here preaching, I just try to share what God is doing in me through these passages. The Holy Spirit is at work on you from the inside out each and every day, but we still sometimes find ourselves at a loss. And I just don't understand how that can be, how that should be, because it shouldn't. But as we approach today's passage, we can be sure of a few things. Today's topic has to do with something we all deal with to some degree. Some of us are completely wrecked by it. Some of us are completely aware of the presence it has in our minds. Some of us try to hide it. We all fall victim to it. And it's nothing to be shamed for because we've all been caught by the surprise. We've all been caught at some point in our lives struggling with this. It has crept up on us. It's hurt us. It's confused us. Sometimes we're even caught up in a whirlwind of uncertainty trying to navigate it. And Paul, and I'm so thankful for Paul here because he gives us a precise, right instruction on it. So that topic for today is obviously anxiety. And I know that's a touchy subject. I know some people really cling to that as their excuse as to why they're not maybe producing some fruit. I know some people have been plagued with worry, plagued with hurt, plagued with a confused mind. And I'm so thankful that Paul today will give you an answer to that. We may not like it, we may not want it, we may not agree with it, but it is the right answer and we must strive for it. So before we get into that, I want us to pray. This solution is so good, we don't have to guess when it comes to anxiety. We've got the answers and I so want you to take hold of that. I see the pain some of you are in and if you would just grab hold of that answer, you would be free from your hurt. Let's ask God to illuminate our hearts and our minds this morning so that we know how to tackle this tough thing called anxiety. Bow your heads with me. Father God, thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. And thank you that it's new and free to me each and every day to take a hold of I thank you that even though we go through issues in this world, like Paul has described all through Philippians, that you have solutions, that you have answers, that you have spoke through the Holy Spirit to men over thousands of years to lead us to this point. We're hearing it from you, from your word, God. Help us to apply it. Help us to open our hearts to see what you would have for us to say and ultimately to gain some freedom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The passage we are in is Philippians 4, 6-7, so I'm going to read it. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Really simple. He says, do not be anxious about anything. It is a command. Anxious. That word is a Greek word, merimnao. Okay? There's two sides of merimnao that we can look at. Because it's the same word that Paul uses earlier in the letter, and it doesn't necessarily have the meaning that we think it does. When he uses merim now, it's when he's talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus. He's talking about how amazing Timothy is, how great he is in this faith to press on with the gospel, celebrating his life as a godly example of humility. He says this about Timothy. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Is that bad anxiety? No, it's not bad anxiety at all. That genuinely concerned. that's a good anxiety. Paul also has that same genuine concern in 2 Corinthians 11. It says he loses sleep over the condition of his churches all over. He planted in many churches. He's genuinely concerned over all of them. I mean, it's clear that he has this overwhelmingly genuine concern for the people that God has entrusted to him because that's his role as an apostle. But if I use that version of Merimnao, it doesn't make sense in this passage, right? He's not saying, don't be good anxious. He's saying, don't be bad anxious. And so we have to think about what that really means for us. When Paul uses Merimnao, he's talking about an anxiety that paralyzes our steps, that incapacitates our ability to discern some truth, an anxiety that runs completely through us. This word merim now it means to be this, to be pulled apart in your mind. Pulled apart. It comes from a word that means divide into pieces. So anxiety is your mind at war with itself. It's being broken into pieces when you're anxious. Your mind is being pulled apart When you allow anxiety to run things, we see many examples throughout scripture of people struggling with anxiety. And I want to give them to you right now. In Genesis 32, Jacob divides his people into two big groups and separates them because he's afraid of Esau coming to kill him. So if he just divides it a little bit, only one of the groups will die if Esau comes and attacks him and the other group will be safe. He's experiencing some anxiety. First Samuel, Hannah isn't able to have children. And what the Bible says, her response to that is heartbreaking. It says she weeps and she doesn't eat. Year after year, she weeps and she doesn't eat. She's in deep anguish and she's deeply troubled. First Samuel 30, we see David, simple one. He's afraid because some guy said they're going to stone him. He's going to die. He's terrified. Anxiety. Psalm 55, even the psalmist himself. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress. People had anxiety since the beginning of time. Paul is just reiterating, though, a point that Jesus had already made. In Luke 12, what does he say? And you all should know this. Therefore, I tell you what. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Jesus continues in Luke chapter 12, and he tells them that he even feeds the birds. Jesus feeds the birds. God feeds the birds. He says, they don't have barns. They don't have farms. They don't store up things in a silo. They don't concern themselves with their next meal. And then here's what I love about Jesus. And clearly, you're more valuable than birds. On top of that, he says, if you can't do anything about your next meal, something like this, why are you worrying about something way bigger? Jesus had an opportunity to address maybe tougher topics. He had an opportunity to say something about depression or hurt and brokenness, but he used food with birds because it's evident that those bigger things shouldn't matter more than this little thing. So he uses something unimportant. So yeah, anxiety can really take our minds captive. Yep, it's a real thing, but here's what's great. Here's the best part of this next portion of the passage. He provides the simplest of answers and solutions that will get your mind right. And he says but in everything, pray. Most of us don't want to receive that because when I'm going through something, I don't care about the little steps I'm supposed to do. I just care about what I'm feeling in the moment. But Paul says, but in everything, pray. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now we're going to be tempted to write this off, really. Some of you could probably just say, yeah, yeah, I pray. I pray every morning. I pray every night before I go to bed. I've tried prayer. You might even be thinking it's just a surface level. Jesus answered, yeah, just pray. You'll be all right. But I want to tell you, if you're looking for something deep, if you're looking for something rich, you're looking for something that provides real truth and real answers and solutions to your anxiety, it's all rooted in prayer. That's not a thought or an opinion. It's what he's saying. But sadly... I fall victim to this as well. Prayer often seems to be our last resort. We get so caught up in trying everything we can do. I'm going to make a phone call. I'm going to go work extra hours. I'm going to talk to my kids. I'm going to do this and that. And then after all else, you've tried every single option that you could think of, and you say, there's nothing else I can do. All I can do is pray. All you can do is pray. But what would happen, Root River Church, if the very first thing we would do with our issues was pray? How much anxiety would flee from you if you would first pray. But the problem is that we're not always on top of our game when it comes to prayer. Some of us, we struggle with how we should even do it and how we utilize it. Some of us have prayers that are short and direct and to the point. Some of us are long-winded. Some of us repeat words a million times. Some of us don't say anything. Some of us pray daily. Some of us pray monthly. Some of us only just pray when they're going through something difficult. Some of us don't even know what prayer is. Now, if you're a believer, you ought to not say, I know what prayer is, I know. Well, Scripture really details what prayer is, gives us examples, gives us instruction. But we're at this spot again where we're just looking left and right to see how others are doing it and trying to just emulate that. I heard Aaron pray like that, so I'm just going to pray like Aaron prays. Oh, I heard Scott pray that once. I'm just going to pray whatever he said. What, I'm going to repeat that, looking left and right. But if we would just come before God with a humble heart and read what his word says about it, We'd come out the other end with a precise answer, a precise solution, and your anxieties would flee from you. It's promised in Scripture, and we'll get into it. He says, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. For starters, prayer obviously refers to the bringing of some type of request to God for ourself or for others. Supplication is just a specific way of prayers that come in the form of begging, crying, petition. It's a deeper prayer. It's an emotional prayer. It's persistent in its prayer. And Thanksgiving means that we shouldn't be demanding or ungrateful. Why should being thankful be made a priority here? Because at all times, and always he's what? So, so good. We sang a whole song about it. And the truth is we don't deserve his mercy and kindness. We don't. I spoke on that with the youth on Friday. We don't deserve God. We deserve everything that is not him, but Jesus, right? But God, we don't deserve his ear. We don't deserve his response yet. He's listening and I'm thankful. So when I come to pray to him, I'm immediately thankful that he's even turning his ear to me. The history and evolution of prayer is super important for us to take note of. In the Old Testament, man begins to call upon the name of the Lord, starting in Genesis. Some of these prayers are a little naive. And direct. It's associated with animal sacrifice. And initially those sacrifices and making of holy places to worship God were just gestures that showed their fidelity and service to Him. It's not wrong, but it was a simple prayer, but soon turned into acts of guilt or acts of gratitude for past mercies. And the only people that could communicate directly with God were two people, priests and prophets. And so they would pray to God on behalf of the people. They had greater access to God for those roles. It's like Moses and David going straight to the Lord for the people. Later in Scripture, there's a new era of prayer. It's introduced by the experiences that the Israelites had during the exile. It's a traumatic experience. Changed the way they saw God. Changed the way they saw their sin. Changed the way they saw mercy and grace. In rescue, this horrible experience ushered in a new wave of passion and focus on one thing, and it's prayer. The prayers of Ezra, the prayers of Nehemiah, Daniel, Isaiah, all were passionate and reflective, and they were super detailed as to why they were praying. And more importantly, they introduced this new thing, confession. They started confessing the areas they started to see that they were not following the one true God. And then we hit the Psalms, even the psalmist himself And the words are filled with a craving of three things, purity, pardon, and spiritual blessings. Then we go to the New Testament, and this is the best part because there's so much on this one person. This one person's name is Jesus. We see how Jesus himself prays. Now I want to pause. How in the world are we caught up in life looking at how Chad prays and how Aaron prays and how Kyle prays when we got an example of how Jesus prays? It says that the heaven opened up when he prayed. It says that he would spend the whole night in prayer. I've done that only a couple times in my life. The whole night, hours. We're struggling with praying for minutes and half an hour and trying to get on every day. And this man is praying the whole night. He prays for God's will to be done even if it hurts him. He prays that his disciples know him to be the one true God. He desperately wants to obey his father and he wants his disciples to obey his father. He hopes that his actions has brought the appropriate glory to his father, that no glory is on him but on just the father. He prays for the future believers, that they respond positively to the disciples' message once Jesus leaves them. He prayed before doing miracles. Sometimes when he prayed, his face and his clothes became bright. His prayers were filled with mercy for others and forgiveness of sins. And when he knew he was going to be put to death for the sins of others... He prayed through the night, and his sweat was like drops of blood. And scripture teaches that he left that night only because he was exhausted from one thing, sorrow. So my Jesus had anxiety. When he was on the cross, what does he say right before he's going to die? God, God, why have you forsaken me? Ultimate, ultimate shame, ultimate brokenness, ultimate anxiety, terror. If Jesus can cast his burdens on God, why can't we? Why don't you? And that's not a charge up from me. That's I'm saying that to myself, but you should say it to yourself. If you know whether or not you go to God frequently, you know whether or not you run to him in your times of anxiety, only you and God know that truth between you two. So ask yourself that this morning. Why don't I? Scripture has shown a clear history of prayer from even the beginning of time and leads up to our very Savior doing it himself. This should show you all the more that prayer is absolutely necessary in the life of believers. But not only do we see how Jesus prays, we get a huge glimpse on what he teaches about how to pray. He spoke in many parables about the importance of prayer. He wants us to ask, because when we ask in accordance to his will, what does he do? He gives it to us. He wants us to be persistent and not give up in your prayers. When we pray, we shouldn't do it, so everyone will see we should do it in private. He wants us to approach God like we'd approach the best father on the earth. He wants us to pray so that we don't fall into temptation. It should be a reverent thing like it was in the Old Testament, and you should show honor. And then, those are all things in the New Testament that says about what he teaches in prayer. Then, he gives us blueprints. This is the Lord's prayer. He gives us the blueprints on how we structure our prayers moving forward. Church, what else do we need? What else do we need in order to see the necessity and urgency to fill our lives and walks with God with prayer? The remainder of the New Testament is full with instruction to dedicate our lives to prayer. All the disciples are saying, dedicate your lives to prayer for for one another. Be united in prayer. Next part of the passage says, let your prayers be made known to God. There's a reason for this. Let your prayers be made known to God. And when I first read that statement, I'm like, all right, why does he need to hear it from me if he already knows it? That's my thought. I'm like, why in the world do I have to say it to him? He's an all-knowing God. He already knows what's in my heart, in in my mind. Why do I have to actually say it? And here's the deal. Where it settles is that we're not informing God because he already knows. But through the process of prayer, we become conformed to God. And I want to talk about that a little bit. Along the way, while I pray to him and I share and we talk through things, he's changing me. Every word is changing me. When we bring our request to God, the first thing that's evident is that we're recognizing one thing, a need. I don't go to God to brag about myself. Can't be that silly. Can't be that dumb. I'm going to go to God and like, look at me. It's terrible. No, but we go, when we go to God, we know that there's something missing in that we absolutely need him. When we get ourselves to a place of humility before God... With a thankful spirit, here's what happens. Your selfishness, checked. Your pride, challenged. Fears, confronted. Anger, diffused. And your thoughts begin to aim outwards to others who are going through some awful things too. And you all of a sudden stop thinking about your own issues and you start thinking about other people's issues. And you start casting burdens for other people to God. We're forced to be humble in this process. You're asking, you're begging, you're exposing and admitting your weaknesses and you're in need and clearly you aren't able to solve it. So you're coming to the King. Shows our dependence and what better way to approach the God of this universe. Root River Church, when you're facing the weight of anxiety, there's nothing better to do than to align yourself with this covering that can protect you. And do you want to know why? Paul's going to tell us why. He says, if you do that, Then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, there's two types of peace. Two pieces that I'm very thankful for. The first piece is this. When you give over your life to God, you are now at peace with God. Before you meet Jesus and accept him into your life, you are not at peace with God. You are enemies of God. But when you give your life over, there's this peace that comes with salvation. Because now you're free. Romans 5, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace through Christ Jesus. We were once enemies but reconciled by God through the death of Jesus Christ and saved by his life. Ephesians 2, that we were once far off, now we are near. This is our peace. That's the first peace. The second peace is a little different. This second peace is supernatural peace that is provided to you from him. It's the peace of God. There's a word here that I want to stop and reflect on briefly, and it has to do with the word that we talked about earlier uh, that Paul uses for anxiety, merimnau, right? If you remember, the word merimnau means to be pulled apart in your mind. The word I want to focus on now is this word guard, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts, and your minds in Jesus Christ. And to no surprise, because Paul has done this many times in his letters, it's a word that he would use in the military. It's not new to him. He's used it three other times. The same word for guard he's used it three other times just in this book had to do with being kept in custody. Kept was the word for guard, kept in custody. The second use is had to do with being protected by the power of God. So kept and protected. And the third had to do with a city being guarded to catch somebody that was at large. So when Paul says that this peace will guard your hearts and minds, he's literally saying it's the protector of your mind. He's saying it's a garrison spiritually, a garrison. In other parts of the New Testament, it's mentioned that the peace of God keeps your mind from being hardened. It keeps your mind from being blinded. It keeps your mind from being outwitted by the devil. Also, so that every thought remains captive to Christ. If we allow anxiety to take root in our minds, we're going to find ourselves completely conflicted and double-minded. And it's so funny, Scott is in James, and a few weeks ago, he's been talking all sorts of stuff about peace, correct? But he's been in James, and if we're Not casting our anxieties on God, our minds become double-minded. And James says this about double-minded people. Double-minded people are unstable in their ways. And I don't know about you, but I've lived an unstable life. I got to imagine some of you have had unstable ways before. You've caught yourself contradicting the way you want to live. You caught yourself being frustrated by the decisions you make. Some of you have experienced awful things in your life. Some of your hearts have been hardened to the words. Some of you have lost this battle over and over with anxiety, and you're desperately trying to find, to get yourself back into a centered position. And it's really hard, because what did we talk about earlier? You're always looking left, and you're always looking right. But if we just come to God in prayer, alignment is natural. Some of you have allowed yourself to be overcome by things when you should have just run to Jesus, and that's no shame to you, but here's what it is to me. It's my plead with you to do that today because it's never too late to run to him. It will be too late someday, but not yet. The world offers us two things regarding anxiety. The world, that not God, not his son Jesus Christ, not the Holy Spirit, not the church, the world. People who do not serve God as their king offers us two things. The first thing that the world offers us is escape. You can simply just pretend that anxiety is not an issue for you. You can go on living your life, worrying about everything, making a bigger deal out of things than you should, arming yourself with constant conversations in the mirror just to justify your position and to hide your brokenness. You try to guide yourself into believing that you have some type of ground to stand on when there is none. The world offers us escape. The second thing it offers us is this. It's silly management. You can simply just occupy your mind with other things. When you have things creep up, you just run to Facebook. When you have things creep up, I just go talk about it with people who are going to sympathize with me. Go to Instagram, call people that I know are going to puff up my ego and my pride and tell me that I'm right. Management, you're just managing the pieces. You're never really building anything or progressing forward. You're just distracting yourself with entertainment and even gossip with other people's anxiety. But here's the great thing. Because there's always Jesus, and Jesus offers us only one thing. He makes the choices very simple. He doesn't make it complicated. He offers elimination. Jesus knows your anxiety in and out, and he wants you to come to him with it. Start early. Get it out. Explain it to him. He wants to hear from you. He wants to hear your heart on all of your anxieties and your hurts and your pains. He's desperate to listen to your burdens. He's pursuing you left and right through the Holy Spirit. He loves you. I was talking with Aaron about this same subject yesterday, and what we concluded was that it's silly, but it's kind of romantic. Jesus is pursuing us. It's the ultimate romance. He says, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds. Don't run from it. I know some of you have some real issues with anxiety. Don't run from it. It's going to be painful and all sorts of things. Run to Jesus. It's so crazy to me, but I feel like in the last few months, Scott's been in the book of James or whatever, and I've been in Philippians, and every week that I've preached, the week before he's preached and included the same passage that I'm coming, the last four sermons. And that's not a me thing. Scott and I aren't sitting down in an office trying to plan this out and make sure that our sermons align. This is Juan, you're taking care of the book of Philippians. Scott, I'm going to take care of James, and let's preach. When I need a week off, you're on. It's by the grace of God, by the planning of God, that some of these passages align so much. This is God reaching out to us, specifically here at River Church. There's a passage in John 17, and it's straight from Jesus to his disciples when he was talking to them about when he'd eventually leave them and they were discouraged and they were brokenhearted and they were sad. How could you leave us? You're our Lord and our Savior, our best friend. Don't leave. What am I going to do without you? And the passage that Scott shared last week, I'm going to share with you this week. Because it's exactly what he says here. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you. Don't let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You know, at the beginning of my message, um, I shared a few examples of anxiety that people go through in, in the Bible. A few examples. And what's so good about these stories, despite some of their brokenness and their hurt and their turmoil and their terror, each of them end with them running to God in prayer. Genesis 32, Jacob divides his people into groups in order to protect a potential attack from Esau. Later in that passage, he prays to God this, Deliver me, Lord, for you said, I will surely prosper you. He ran to God. God gave him peace. First Samuel 1, Hannah isn't able to have children, and she weeps and doesn't eat year after year. She's in deep anguish and deeply troubled. And it says toward the end, and she begins praying to the Lord and pouring out her soul. 1 Samuel 30, David feared for his life because men were talking about stoning him. What does he say towards the end? said, instead of my terror, I found strength. Lastly, Psalm 55 says, evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress. Later he says, but he hears my voice. Church, the way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. So if you're here this morning and anxiety has taken root in your life and you're over it and you just want to be done with it and you know you've been struggling with allowing it to run your mind, to be torn into pieces, to take over you, and you need help giving it to God, I'm going to pray right now. And as I pray, what are you going to do? You're going to tell it to God. You're going to put to practice what I just shared with you. You're going to put to practice what Paul says. You're going to put to practice what God's will for your life is and do what? You're going to go straight to him. And let me tell you. What does he say? I will give you peace and the peace of God. He's going to shape you and mold you and guard your heart and mind. But know when you go to God, there's a pruning process. Know to God that it's more than this moment on Sunday. Because tomorrow you've got to wake up and go to him again. Because there's new things going on and new attacks from the enemy. It's going to demand sacrifice and submission. He's going to want to change you and I beg you, let him. Welcome it. Allow him to speak to you. Let's pray. Father God, you are so, so good to us. Your love and your mercy and your grace is unfathomable. And you say, Lord, that the enemy is after us. And, And you said, despite that, the world is after that. Despite that, you have overcome it. And you are there to walk us hand in hand through the growth. You're there to rescue us. You're there to be our shelter. You're there to be our source of strength and peace. And so, God, I pray today, the people in this room, that are struggling with anxiety, that they would hear what you had to say this morning and be prompted to do exactly what you said, that they would put to practice what you've just taught them and they come to you with it. Lord, I'm asking for extra grace and mercy today that you would put faith in the hearts of these people to allow them to see you for who you say you are and to see themselves for who they actually are. Lord, we love you. We lift up your name. We give you all the glory for what you're doing in our lives and what you want to do in our lives. And and God, we pray that as we leave today, that we remember that we come to you. We don't go to other people. We come to you and we cast our burdens on you. And they're yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.